You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. I'm Mason Pasha. This episode is part of a series that highlights Indigenous leaders in education and unpacks their research, their leadership styles, their connection to place, and their identity. Together with my co-host, Dr. Jason Cummins, we hope to spotlight the ways that the education system can and must learn from these leaders and their critical work. Jason, would you mind introducing yourself? Um, no, I wouldn't mind. I'm happy to be here, Mason, and I'm really excited about the project. And I'm Jason Cummins. I'm a member of the Abzalaga Nation. We're located in South Central Montana. And um, a little bit about myself. I'm a member of the Abzalaga tribe, as I said, and the Azhoja clan. I guess I'm really family-oriented and community-oriented. And me and my wife, Velvet, have been married for about 30 years. Four sons and two grandkids right now. And so just this type of work has really enveloped our lives. And today we have with us Robin. And Robin, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Um Robin Um my name is Robin Zaitohola-Minthorn. And I'm a citizen of the Kiowa tribe um, of Oklahoma. I'm also a descendant of the Apache, Nez Perce, Matilla, and Assiniboine tribes as well. Um, and I'm joining you all today from the Puyallup or Spialajwa people um, here um, in Washington state. And so I want to acknowledge that I live, work, and I'm responsible to the Puyallup people um, whose land we occupy at the University of Washington, Tacoma. So I actually came into contact with Dr. Minthorn's work through a couple of really good colleagues of mine. So um, Dr. Sweeney Winchief was working on a book, I think, that... Um, Dr. Minthorn edited, and also another, and that was Reclaiming Indigenous Research in Higher Ed, and it's a really good work. And and I think you were also um, an editor for Unsettling Settler Colonialism, and uh, I probably got the title a little wrong, but another colleague was involved in that work, um, Holly Mackey. And then um, I had come out to Washington State and met uh, Mr. Minthorn, Gabe, we started visiting around, and it turned out that um, he was married to Dr. Minthorn here. And so I was like, oh, wow, small world, you know. Um, the world of indigenous educators is really um, not that large. And so especially within our fields of indigenous research and leadership. So it's a really, a, I guess, a collegial crowd. And that's how I kind of um, came to, into contact with the work. Robin, would you mind telling us a little bit about some of the work that you're involved with? Sure. Um, so I'm an associate professor here in the School of Education at UW-Tacoma, um, University of Washington-Tacoma. Um, and I'm also I'm the director of our doctoral program in educational leadership and director of Indigenous Education Initiatives. Um, I um, have um, lived here. This is our fourth year living here in the Pacific Northwest. And um, I've been really fortunate to be a part of developing a tribal partnership with the University of Washington with the Muckleshoot Tribe. Um, and so we've been working on that over the last four years. And, um, and so recently, that's some of the recent work that I've been able to work with. Um, we started that work in August or September 2019. Um, and we signed an MOA, a Memorandum of Agreement, with the Muckleshoot Tribe in February of 2020. Um, to have our first doctoral cohort um, that's tribally placed at um, Muckleshoot Tribal Lands. Um, and we started that cohort in summer of 2020 during the pandemic. Um, and so we just recently graduated them um, this last week. And um, we are starting our second cohort um, this next uh, Friday. Um, 
um, here at UW Tacoma, and then also they'll be taking classes out at Muckleshoot Tribal College. Um, so we've also signed another MOA for that second doctoral cohort, and then we also have signed another memorandum of agreement for our master's in education. So we have 18 um, students in the master's, Muckleshoot master's cohort, um, and they started those last autumn out at Muckleshoot. And so um, it is tribally placed. We have Native faculty teaching those classes, Native Indigenous scholarship that they're reading, um, and it is all Indigenous in our curriculum and content. Um, in the education a master's as well as in our doctoral program um, here at UW Tacoma. So how, how important is it to, I guess, train and produce indigenous leaders into this space? Or, or what's the importance there and what's the need? So it's really important um, because there aren't, I mean, in general, across the United States, there aren't a lot of native people who have graduated with their doctoral degrees. Um, and not that doctoral degrees are everything or that we need that, um, but that it is essential when we're talking about moving into the various spaces in public schools, school systems, and higher education or in broader education systems. Um, and so it's really important to have that. But I think what's also essential is that when we're developing and working with growing our indigenous leaders um, in education spaces, that they're doing it central um centralizing and enveloping their indigenous identity or tribal identity um, in these spaces because for many years even when I was going through my doctoral degree um, we were not able to incorporate that um, in our education as much as we were are now and so being able to center that is really important um, and especially here I would say in the Pacific Northwest but anywhere where there's tribal people um, because we have since time immemorial um, up here in Washington State um, there is that need to be able to work with our superintendents and principals um, and to advocate for their accountability for building those nation-to-nation -nation relationships and tribal governance and advocacy um, and so being able to have native people who are receiving these degrees that can go out and be superintendents, can be principals, can be system transformers and leaders. I think that's really important to be able to have that um, so that they can not only utilize that space of and in, in, in centering their indigenous identity, but also navigating the other spaces that they're going to have to navigate within education systems. One, one thing about Washington State that I really appreciated was, and you mentioned the nation-to-nation -nation relationship is, to be a principal or a superintendent in the state of Washington, you need five hours, I believe, of training of how to um, consult with um, tribal nations. Because to be able to get at a state level um, Title VI funding and, and um, sev several other funding sources, you have to consult with tribes at the state level and then in the local level. So just for a state to um, be progressive and innovative to say we want to respect this um, status of native nations and i'm um, training our teachers to do that because a lot of times principals and superintendents are trained to work just with you know a, maybe a middle class school off the reservation and um how, how do you how does the program there approach that i guess the consultation and nation to nation status well, um, one of the things that we focus on, um, well, so we do incorporate um, since time immemorial in our, even our on-campus doctoral cohort, which um, we have students in there who are um, pursuing their superintendent program administration. Um, and so that's one of the things that we do encourage um, is for them to understand what it means 
for tribal sovereignty um, and also um, what it means for them to understand who are the local people in their school districts to build relationships that are not just about nation to nation, but are actually about like sustainable relationships with tribal communities. Um, because I think that's really important when we want them to be invested and be present in tribal communities. And, um, and so I think that's one of the things we do try to build in. We do um, incorporate since time and memorial in our superintendent courses um, so that they are understanding what that means. Um, and for those who are not familiar with since time and memorial, it is a legislation that was passed in 2020, 2015 um, that's required to be implemented within the state of Washington. So it specifically focuses on more like the social studies content areas where they incorporate tribal communities and narratives, not just for native students, but for all students to learn. Um, and so that's one of the things that it's required to be implemented. And now we're at this place um, where, you know, I've been grateful to be a part of some of this work at the state level with the PESB, um, the Public Education Service Board, um, as well as WESIP, which is the Washington Council of Education Administrative um, Programs, which we work with like our superintendent principal programs across the state who are in universities. Um, in our programs. And so we, I've been able to work with um, our around STI um, with that. And so one of the things that we're figuring out is like we're all in different places on implementation. And that's one of the things that there was advocacy for that um, this year um, at the state level to like, how do we understand our implementation level within school districts, um, but also within our ed admin programs within our universities. Um, and being able to figure out like what are the resources that are needed. So there is a requirement for implementation, but there is not the resourcing that's behind that implementation. And that's one of the things that I think that are coming through in regards to like the resourcing is really important um, as well. So I'm not also uh, expecting our tribal nations to do all of the work. And um, when we're looking at the governance to governance relationship with school districts um, and figuring out like how can we make sure we're training our um, teachers or administrators to really understand what tribal sovereignty means and what does that mean in implementing STI into the curriculum, into these spaces um, with our students, regardless of their native or not. Um, and so that's one of the things that I've seen grow in, up here in Washington State. And STI is since time immemorial, correct? Yes, thank you. Okay, yeah, great. since time immemorial. Um, I do have a follow-up question from what you were saying a little bit earlier. So you were talking about how the programs are much more um, accepting in some ways of people kind of showing up as their full identity, their full selves, and you're obviously playing a key role in that. What what does that look like in practice? Like how um, somebody showing up with more of a um, indigenized um, self or someone who's gotten sort of the um, permission to be that in a leadership role? So um, when I started um, in this role as the director, one of the things is that our program is built on foundations and values that were, were very Western oriented around accountability, around all of the jargon that we hear and leadership, um, you know, um, courses and literature. And so one of the things um, when I started my first year, we reassessed, like, what does that really look like from a decolonial lens? Um, and so looking at, so then we re we basically redid our whole program and reformatted 22 of our courses to um, center the values that we um, re-established, um, which is our five values are ancestral knowledge, um, relational learning, disrupting and dismantling, um, and um, healing, 
And I believe I might be forgetting one more. Um, but I, I, we looked at those five values and we connected them to who, what we are teaching in our courses. And those are actually like we directly connect to those values in the classes. And so then we directly connect those to the assignments and the reading. And so for me, I think it's really important that if our students, our doctoral students feel empowered to be who they are and their leadership practice and how they're connecting, then they are then going to translate that into their leadership practice in school systems. So then their students feel like they can be who they are in the classroom, honoring what they're bringing with them into the school, as well as honoring the teachers and what, how they teach. So it's not all prescription um, in regards to like how you're supposed to teach, but also honoring the identity that our teachers are bringing with them in the classroom. So when we have Native educators, our BIPOC teachers that are making sure that we're honoring them because not everybody is going to teach from the same place because everybody has different lived experiences. And so I think that's really important when we talk about honoring praxis in place um, because we need to make sure that we're also um, flexible, right, and what that looks like for us. So I'm just I'm just want to add and add to the discussion that honoring place is really, I think, needed because a lot of times it takes courage to enter the school system and say, hey, this um, educational experience isn't very relevant to the students I'm serving. You know, whether those students are from the other side of the tracks or a BIPOC community, you know, it's just something outside the mainstream. And a lot of times we, I think the status quo and the pressure is to just let education continue as is. But it does take a lot of courage to say, hey, let's provide a relevant education. And there was a there was a quote I heard last week, too. And a, um, I think it was Dr. Yellowbird, I believe. I'll find it later. But he said, I'm decolonizing or decolonization work is not rebellion. It's healing. And that was really interesting. But um. What does it mean to indigenize the academy? Or what are your thoughts on indigenizing the academy and indigenizing school leadership? And healing the academy, it sounds like, based on that quote you were saying. Yeah. I, I mean, I love that quote and um, appreciate Dr. Um, Yellowbird's work as well. Um, and I, I think to me, indigenizing the academy means um, being who we are in these spaces. Um, because I actually um, was talking about decolonizing the academy this past weekend and um, our higher education. And one of the things, like when we talk about decolonizing, I've heard like, what does that mean, right? And so, um, and it means something different for different people. But for decolonizing, the the D or DE means is a Latin of moving away from coloniality, right? So we've been colonized as people and as systems in our um, in our education systems, whether it's higher education or P12, right? This These systems were not created with indigenous people in mind, right? They were created um, in mind to colonize us. And so whenever we're talking about indigenizing the academy, we're talking about creating spaces that represent who we are as indigenous people um, and our values and how we are, how we we function and live um, in our tribes and our communities. And so um, I think for me, it's really essential. Like what I've seen with our Muckleshoot cohort, um, this first cohort that we've had, um, 
for the students and the, the they're all native women or um, two of them are, um, have worked in tribal communities and are non-indigenous, but they, um, they said they are a cohort of sisters. And so to use relationality and familial ways of associating with who they are to me is indigenizing because whenever we have to be responsible as good relatives in our spaces, um, whether we're working in DC, Washington, or we're working in Washington state over here, you know, on the West coast, like we have to acknowledge that we have to be good relatives. And that means good caretakers of the earth, good caretakers of our children, um, good caretakers of our elders. And so um, to me, we can incorporate all of that whenever we're talking about indigenizing the academy. We have to be connected to place because if we're disconnected from place, then that means we're upholding the colonization that was meant to harm us. School systems have a really complicated yeah. past in regards to our Native American populations. That the, And I believe the boarding school report, it probably has a more formal name, but from the interior and and it talks about the school systems were made to displace Native peoples from their lands. Yeah, and I um, I want to reference to Dr. Hannah Kivahula Uden, who's Puyallup here, and she did a, a her dissertation on interviewing Puyallup tribal elders um, around like their um, their connections to education, and one of the things that um, I'll take with me, like wherever I go, you know, I am going, I am leaving the University of Washington. But um, one of the things that I, I would say that I learned from her is that when she interviewed the elders, she she asked them because she saw that children in the Puyallup or Chiflashai schools, they were there, they weren't making um, their assessment quotas, they weren't, you know, graduating. Um, and she was like, well, what's going on? Like, we're doing all of these things. Like, what's happening? But she, when she interviewed Piala tribal elders, one of the things that she mentioned was, like, the elders talked about, like, that emotional reaction to going into a school if they had a, had gone through the boarding school. So even though today, like, Chief Lashai is not a boarding school, when they started to prepare themselves to walk into Chief Lashai, having gone through that boarding school experience, they had to take a breath before entering the school because it reminded them of that boarding school experience. And so when we talk about healing intergenerational trauma, like that is still living with our grandparents, it's still living with some of our parents, you know, or that are here today. And so when we talk about like that association with education to boarding school, it still lives with our youth because it still lives with their parents and their grandparents. And so um, so I really think, you know, when we talk about like student success, like it looks differently for Native students. And how often do we ask our communities and our Native students, like, what does success look like for you? For some of them, it's just going to be surviving, right? To be able to have food on the table, to be able to have their lights on, to have access to water. Um, and for some of them, it's going to be like, I graduated high school. I'm the first person in my family to graduate high school. That's success for me. Um, and so then to move into transitioning into higher education, um, that's a big, you know, transition and a big success. So when we talk about principals and superintendents, thinking about what does it look like to indigenize or to think about building relationships, it's being in relationship with those communities, with those youth and understanding what does education look like for them? What does it look like for their communities and for their families? And to have real conversations about their experiences so that they know what types of support and resources they need to provide for our Native youth to be able to be successful and graduate or to be, just be able to live and survive. 
And so I think that's one of the things, but also to know that there's so much strength and beauty in our communities with our languages being revitalized, with our identities and our culture and our values still living, despite all of these things that we've had to survive. And so um, those are the things I think that are really important um, when we talk about that and that we're not um, a historical figure or historical, I know, factors that we are living. And regardless of whether or not they have like a tribal community that's tribal land is on their school district, they have tribal people who lived in those communities before, right? And so acknowledging those people and those ancestors that are connected to those school districts, connecting to those lands is really important because then that helps our other Native students who aren't from those spaces to still feel like they're visible and that they're recognized. Dr. Minthorn, you've moved from like kind of the place that you're from to come up to UW. You said you came up here like four years ago. Jason, I know you're currently um, away from home as well. So like how how might we equip people to kind of change place and recognize place? Like I think that that is really challenging. I'm also moved. I'm not from the Pacific Northwest. I live here now. How do you equip leaders to recognize place, live into place, and empower place? Yeah. So for me... um... I, so I before I lived here in Washington for four years, I lived in New Mexico for seven years. And so I'm, I I was born in Oregon, um, but grew up in Oklahoma. Um, and um, I'm you know my tribes are from Oklahoma, Oregon, um, Montana, um, Idaho. And so there's a lot of overlap. But um, one of the things that I think is really important is like whether we're indigenous or not indigenous, and we're not from that place is to be humble and have humility about where we're at and know that we're learners. And so even me going to New Mexico or coming here, like I never would situate myself as like an indigenous expert or a tribal expert here because I'm always a learner. And whether I was here for 10 years or 20 years, I would never speak for the people whose land this is. And so I would always want to have relationships so that I can hand it over to them and like them share from their perspective. Um, and so as, as administrators or educators, I think we need to make sure that we're always um, acknowledging who we're connected to in that place. And I'm um, learning about it. Right. And so who are the people who were originally from that place and understanding that there is obviously historical ties. So here in Puyallup where I'm located, the Puyallup people lived here and were from here. The river, the Puyallup River, this is where people, you know, have fished for many years. Um, also knowing that the United States government moved the river, um, not, you know, in a non, non you know, traditional way, moved the river so that highways could be built. Um, and um, by acknowledging that our, our, that water coming from that river comes from Tacoma, or Tahoma, right, from Mount Rainier. Um, so every time I pass over that bridge, and thanks to an elder from here, Connie McLeod, who taught me and Gabe, you know, we need to say aho or katsiayo for the chush every time we drive over that river because we need to remember where our, our water is coming from. And so when we get to know place and those connections and memories to the indigenous or tribal people, then we are more intentional about what we're doing and how what we're doing impacts other people. And it's not just about how it impacts indigenous people and all people, right? Um, and so I think it brings that mindfulness, that reflection, 
Um, and it also reminds us as individuals of what we're responsible to in our actions and what we're doing. And so I think for me, that's how I've connected to place. And like, it's about that relationality piece of the human and the non-human. What are some first steps they should take to familiarizing with place? Yeah, I, I, well, I would find out like who the local community, living community is, like who is there. Um, who are the people like, you know, sometimes it's like observing, like who are the people that are deeply connected to community and building relationships with them so that they can help introduce you and connect you to other people. I think it's being present at community events, right? So for me and my husband, like we are present at many APL community events that we're invited to, um, you know, and just making sure that we are present and learning um, because that's our responsibility. Um, and so I think for people that are moving into these new spaces um, and to know, like, it's not just like I'm bringing in like all the people that I know and all the things that I know, but it's about learning. Like we're always learners until we, you know, we leave this earth. And so I think it's approaching in that learning aspect and that like I need to learn. I need to feel like I build those relationships with other people because that's what's important in my work that I'm doing. Yeah, I like I like what you said about, you know, being humble and um, being a learner and that you're not the expert and um, finding out who's who. And that reminds me of um, just being being a good guest. Right. You know, and. And, uh, and in some of my work, that was what the community wanted, superintendents and principals coming from outside their community to know is like not to come in with a my way or the highway attitude, but to learn and to um, be teachable. And um, you spoke to that, and I, I think that's really useful and reminded me of a story where um, I have a mentor and he lived on with our community for over 40 years. And um, he said he was still a guest, although he had been adopted. He's familiar with all of the, you know, the story and the culture. And he said he was still a guest and he would never presume to speak as an expert for the community. And it was really, I think, a, uh, a balancing, uh, just, just a respect, you know, showing mutual respect. And I think you spoke to all those. So I agree with I agree with that, Mason. (laughs) (laughs) Extending the guest thing further, this is maybe a question of my ignorance, but is there a view within tribal communities that they are also guests? Like, does the guest continue to extend to like like a guest on earth, like a guest of the place? Because there's a stewardship element that's like kind of implicit. But I'm wondering if like you follow the guest thread all the way, if like everyone is a guest. And so you're just like, if you always behave as a guest, that's sort of like the proper disposition. I haven't heard it um, worded that way, but I'm thinking now, so I don't know. (laughs) Well, when I I think of like my teachings, like from my grandparents, like I would go visiting, you know, with my grandma to different like places. And then I remember my grandma hosted people um, whether like it was like hosting to to stay or we're just hosting to visit, like she always gifted people with something before they left, whether it was food, whether it was something. And so I try to uphold that like in my practice, like when people come visit me, like I always make sure they leave with something, whether it's like I'll fill them up with a bag of snacks and like a bag of like things to take with them and or, or give them something. And so I think, um, you know, and one of the things I would say is like not every community is the same. So I want to make sure that I acknowledge that for our tribal nations, like we're not homogenous. And so that means we don't approach like what it means to be a guest or a tribal member 
the same. And so like here in Puyallup, again, I don't want to speak for them, but um, they do acknowledge um, Puyallup tribal community members. So they do have community members where um, maybe they're native, but they're not like Puyallup, but they lived here for years and are connected, involved. And so they acknowledge them as community members. Um, and so um, whereas like in another place, um, like let's say New Mexico or somewhere, um, if you're not from the tribe, and I'm not speaking for all tribes there by any means, but if you're not from one of their tribes and they're doing a ceremony, you do have to leave, right, so that they can do their ceremonies as tribal members. And so I just want to acknowledge, like, that context of, like, guest and visitor and place is different depending on where, where you're visiting. And so just to always, like, be open to learning about that um, and acknowledging it and respecting how they do things, right? Because um, I would never, like, tell somebody how to do something, but I, I want to make sure that I'm learning and, and able to respect their ways. I have a, I have a question, and just thinking about your programs and how you've um, you've um, allowed people to be empowered to be in, you know, these educational places. And with Indigenous knowledge in general and, you know, Indigenous thought, how does that, how can you see that benefiting the larger, I guess, educational community? Yeah. Um, well, I guess for me, like, um, for seeing... Being myself, I think, has been something I've had to come in. I mean, I'm grateful when I started my faculty role, um, which isn't that long ago, but it does seem like a long time ago, which is 2012. Again, not that long ago. Um, but when I started, I, I'm, I'm grateful that I started with a teaching and identity workshop where um, I had to conceptualize my values as a, a in my teaching and how I approached it. Um, and so to me, I feel like that also empowered me to do that in my faculty role, but then and also how I led and work with other people and students. And so leading with those identities of who I am as a tribal person, um, I think to me, from what I've heard from other people, has helped um, to empower them to do the same in their spaces. So whether they're working as a principal, a superintendent or administrator, like being authentic to who they are, I think it also allows other people to be authentic. And I think one of my, um, a, a really big compliment that I got from a, a black um, leader on Friday at graduation, he's in our program and he is graduating and he, he on the side, he thanked me for the program. And he said, thank you for being, making space for me to be myself. And to hear that from a black man in an educational leadership program for him to feel like he had the space to be himself to me was a very high compliment um, because there are many places where our black men cannot be themselves and feel like they're not being looked at in a certain way. So to me, that was a very big compliment. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, that's powerful. And just a testament to the work that's taking place. It's a short question, but um, what kind of dispositions do you believe that leaders need in these spaces? Yeah, so actually I've been building off of the work. So I um, did um, edit a book on Indigenous leadership in higher education. And um, we, and and this is not directly connected to P12, but we, you know, we know we work across spaces. And so um, there were 21 contributors in that book who were Indigenous. 16 were Indigenous leaders in higher ed, and six were Native students in, in higher ed. And so one of the things that came out of that book was that um, connections of knowing who we are, um, 
who we are as indigenous people or as people in general, what we are striving to embody, what we know. So acknowledging indigenous knowledges, acknowledging place, and then what we do as leaders is really important. And so I've been also building on that and thinking about what does it mean to be a good relative? honoring our ancestors, telling our stories, um, acknowledging our connections, finding our medicine, and leaving a legacy. So all of those to me are not just relevant to Indigenous people, but I think it's relevant to who we are as people and humans. And so I think the more that we can um, think about those instead of like westernizing leadership, but making things more human and connected to place and connected to relationship, I think um, will help us be um, better um, for our future generations. Well, I, this has been awesome. I, I really appreciate uh, both of you and your your perspectives and uh, taking time to share today. Um, Dr. Minthorn, you mentioned you might be headed somewhere new. What can we What can we keep an eye on? Is that something we can share in the podcast? I'm sure that's fine. Um, it's been a hard decision and a hard transition. So I'm I'm not a hard transition, but a hard decision. Um, I'm actually going to be moving to the University of Oklahoma, somewhere I grew up and, and lived. And so I've been away for 11 years from my own community where I grew up in. Um, and so I'll be able to return back, but with a lot more knowledge and experience. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to bringing that back to the, not only my tribal people, but to all tribes um, in Oklahoma. And just like, not that I'm bringing anything back, but that I'm able to work with them. And I'm mean, continuing the work that they're already doing and just trying to figure out ways that I can strengthen that in some way. Um, and so that's something that I'm looking forward to. And while still trying to have ties up here um, in the Pacific Northwest with this um, program up here, I'm really I'm grateful for the relationship with the Muckleshoot tribe and um, with the tribal people up here in Puyallup as well. And so um, I think we're, once, and um, Jason, you can speak to this, but once you're tied to a local community or tribal community, you never leave them. Like you're always connected to them. So I would say the same in New Mexico. I still have ties there and um, I'm always responsible to to having relationships there. And so, um, so yeah, so that's what I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to building these connections across like New Mexico, Washington, and Oklahoma. And I just know that we need so many more indigenous leaders in these spaces to navigate, but we also need leaders who are non-indigenous to make sure that they're remembering who we are, acknowledging who we are and honoring our tribal sovereignty and honoring relationship and place. So thank you for letting me share that. Yeah, thank you. Congratulations. And Jason, Dr. Menthorn, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason at gettingsmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much. 